And I realized that I couldn't answer that question well. Why? I had quit listening as soon as I hit the crazy quote. Welcome to the Wisdom Conviction Podcast. My name is Tim Yohoff. I'm a professor of communication at Biola University in La Mirada, California. I'm also the co-director of the Winsome Conviction Project. One of the great things about doing the project in this podcast, get to do it with friends. So welcome Rick Langer, co-host and co-director. Thank you, Tim. I'm also a professor here at Biola in the Biblical Studies and Theology Department, and I'm the director of the Office of Faith and Learning, but shared the responsibilities with Tim for doing the Winsome Conviction Project. And we're so glad you've joined us here as we continue our conversation about listening. Uh, we talked last time a little bit about the uh, challenges that come up from listening. We, we talked about how vitally important it is, how deeply people feel loved uh, when you give them the gift of attention by fully listening to what they're saying. And we also talked about some of the challenges of doing that, the things that shut us down and instantly keep us from listening, which are kind of really dangerous things because we drift into it really readily. So we're picking up on that theme today. And Tim, why don't you get us started with uh, some more obstacles to listening? Uh, what's so funny, Rick, is I actually teach a class on communication and listening. <laughs> my wife, I, my wife, I imagine now is laughing. Yeah, listening I can, to, listening I can to only imagine. Yeah, yeah okay. this podcast. all right. So there's a term that's used that I think is really interesting. It's called ambushing. Oh. Ambushing is this uh, term that you enter a conversation simply with the goal of winning the argument. So here's what's funny about ambushers, Rick. They're great listeners. Like they ask phenomenal questions. Why? Because this is a chess match and they're moving you towards. So technique. this isn't a, I'm curious. This oh. is a playing out your strategies sort of question. Oh, asking. totally. Uh, so I did, I've done one official debate, Rick, just one. When I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ crew, uh, I was, um, got a phone message and the phone message was from the University of Virginia crew movement asking me if I would debate uh, a leading atheist. Rick, this guy has been debated by everybody. William Lane Craig, uh, Geisler, uh, McDowell, all debated this guy. And he's in like the top 2% of IQ. What's that group called? Menza. Yeah, Menza. I don't even know the name of it. That's yeah, right. how far away <laughs> I am from it. Okay, so I get this message and on the phone my phone machine, and I go, this is ridiculous. I was going to go for a run. I go, this is ridiculous. So I go for a run, and the Holy Spirit says, what, you're never going to ask me about this, whether you should do this? You're just going to say no? So the reason they were asking me, by the way, is they had run out of money. The movement oh, had no you were money. Cheap. Yeah, you yeah, were yeah, cheap. Yeah, yeah, I was Got cheap. Got it. Okay. Gas money in a T-shirt, right? So, so I do it. I agree to it. I, I do my first debate. Rick, the place is packed. It is absolutely packed. This dude is an experienced debater. Okay, so you get to this point. I do opening statement. He does opening statement. Then we each can ask each other questions. So Rick, when he asked me a question, it was such a weird feeling knowing every word would be used against me. <laughs> like, well, what do you think about the dating of the New Testament? What do you think about the validity of it? And at first, I wasn't very good. I was like, well... I would say <laughs> not definitively, but some would argue, right? I knew every word was being categorized by him, and it's all coming back at me. And though he had asked you a question, you realized he wasn't really asking a question. He was setting you up for dinner. Yeah, one of them later was, well, do you believe in God's goodness? 
and there was yeah. a huge pause. The campus director of the University of Virginia later said to me, I laughed almost out loud <laughs> because you, if I were to ask you that privately, is God good? You're going to say, oh, yeah, all day yeah. long. He's great. But he asked me, God, he said, there was a pause because you were thinking, I got to be careful here because I know he's going to do the problem of evil. Well, is God good, powerful, all-knowing? Then why doesn't he stop evil? So there's kind of a, a combat version of listening, quote, and then there's a community-building version of listening, and we need to make sure we do the latter and not the former. And then let me just, all right, so I'm going to be transparent here. I am absolutely an ambusher because I was on the debate team. So they my, train you to ambush. Oh, they train you to ambush. So if my kids are having a disagreement, I'll just ask some questions. Well, okay, so I, uh, like, do you believe the Bible's authoritative? <laughs> and they're like, Dad, they, they call me out now. Dad, that is a pseudo question, man. You do, you do not care about my answer because you're going to use that. So you know what I mean? Ambushing is in the DNA of academia. I mean, mm. we're sort of, even when you go to an academic conference, right, there's a responder. And most times, there's a person responding to your academic paper. So I just realized, Rick, I am, I am geared to be an ambusher. The nicest ever, but I'm an ambusher. <laughs> All right, let me give you one. Um, that, again, I, this is these moments of self-reflection where I realize I, I hear a thing like this, and I stop listening. So this is the crazy quote. Uh, and it doesn't matter what the quote is about. It just strikes me as quote crazy. And notice here, I'm not saying it's an objectively crazy quote. Mm. I will certainly feel it's objectively crazy, of course, but I'm acknowledging the fact that that's my perception. I'm simply saying when I perceive it as being crazy, I'm just like, yep, there's no point in listening to the rest of this thing. And I'll always be polite. <laughs> I, don't, I don't give them the raspberry or just shut my eyes and say, are you done yet? You know, but... Right. I have mentally ceased to listen. So let me unpack this. I realize there's kind of two different ways this happens. Uh, and I think both of them are really good for us to kind of build our awareness of. One is this, uh, the crazy quote, and let me just give you an example of a crazy quote, a thing that I just hear and going, oh, you've got to be kidding me. And in this case, it actually attaches to what we talked about in the previous podcast about differing definitions of, oh, yeah. of terms. But the package makes it really crazy. So this is in a a curriculum guide, stride one, dismantling racism in mathematics instruction. This is uh, part, well, let me just read the quote. <laughs> this is a workbook for teachers to help them deconstruct racist practices in math education, help them shift their instructional beliefs and practice towards anti-racist math education. Now, there's lots of things already that, I, so I was a math science guy growing up through, all the way through college, chemistry major and all that. I was going to do that, but I went theater. Yeah, go ahead. yeah it was, I'm sure it was nip and tuck <laughs> for you, Tim. The, the irony of this is that part of why I loved math, I tried to avoid the entire humanities side of campus. I discovered German counted as both a social science and a humanities, so I took German. Why did I take German? Because, you know, the funny thing is, in German, there's right and wrong answers to the question. There's like grammar and you can learn the grammar and you can get it right or you can get it wrong. It was a lot like math that I could get right or wrong or chemistry that you could get right or wrong. And I didn't want some subjective teacher grading my paper and saying, well, your paper wasn't, quote, well argued or some other thing that sounds soft and mushy. So this is me. This is my disease. I'm just letting you know ahead of time. When I get a book that's telling me that the focus of my math education should be deconstructing these racial practices and doing anti-racist math education, I'm surely not in favor of racist math education, but it isn't clear to me that math is the sort of thing that goes one way or another. So you can feel me already rising in tension. Then, 
We see white supremacy culture show up in the mathematics classroom even as we carry out our professional responsibilities as outlined in the California Standards for the Teaching Profession. Using the California Standards for Teaching Profession as a framework, we see white supremacy culture in the mathematics classroom can show up when, and then they have a kind of a whole set of context. Let me just lift three of the ones from, and they probably had 20 on this first page. Number one, when the focus is on getting the right answer. <laughs> see, Tim, I don't know if you heard that. You Tim, so judgmental. Tim you laughed so, on the other side. Rick, you are so judgmental. So second one, <laughs> when students are required to show their work. And the third one was addressing mistakes. So let me just tell you that when I read this, this does the crazy quote function for me. And I'm just like, I'm sorry. It's white supremacist math education when, you, when the focus is on getting the right answer. And that just leaves me off the bus. Now, let me point out that I think at the end of the day, no matter how well I listen or something like that, I'm probably going to have some pretty profound disagreements with the people who are drawing up this whole curriculum designed to give to math educators. It's kind of a workbook to refine their teaching skills and make them more, more anti-racist. So, yeah, we'll probably disagree. But here's the interesting thing. Um, in fact, it was highlighted when I just mentioned this quote kind of sideways to a colleague in, uh, that we were having a discussion about something else, but I just read this, and so it was you know, fresh in my mind. And she made this wonderful observation. She says, well, what context was that in? Mm. Oh, that's good. And I realized that I couldn't answer that question well. Why? Because I had stopped listening. Even some of the things I've shared to explain its context don't make me feel a whole lot better, but the striking thing to me was I couldn't even tell her that because I had quit listening as soon as I hit the crazy quote. Yep. And I didn't even bother to think, okay, what's going on? What are their concerns? Did they really want to dismantle right and wrong answers for math? I don't even know the answer to that because I refuse to continue to read or to continue to listen. Um, so that's one way we do this. The other thing, this is kind of like a microculture thing where they have you know, one framework, I have another, and so uh, the, the thing sounds crazy. The other thing we do that's all the time is historical issues. So we read a historical thing from the past and we just say, what is wrong with those people? Um, we were just having a conversation with Julia Wood. You've probably heard our podcast with that, talking about women's suffrage women not being viewed as full citizens, not having the right to vote until we had the 19th Amendment in 1920, I guess it was. Um, and, you know, so these are all things that we all hear in 2020, you know, mindset. And we just go, man, this is just crazy. What was wrong with our country and the world? And I'm not really planning on defending all of those things, but could we understand a bit of the context? Mm. So pop quiz. What percentage, when, when the American Revolution took place um, and we were complaining about taxation without representation, what percentage of the people in the United Kingdom or in England at that time actually had the vote? Not of women, but of men or of anybody. Hmm. And the bottom line is the only people who had the vote were property owners of a, above a certain amount that mean, meant about 10% of England had the vote at that point. And we have, therefore, 
British pamphleteers who are writing to America saying, you guys are freaking out about taxation, not representation, because you're not getting your rights. 90% of England doesn't get the vote mm. either, but we're still one of the more democratic countries in the world, and they were proud of their parliament. And, and you know who one of the guys who wrote one of those pamphlets is? John Wesley. <laughs> and I'm like, so what do I call John Wesley, mm. who was an advocate for abolition, all kinds of other wonderful associations, but he didn't seem concerned at all that a vast majority of people didn't get the vote. Uh, England had a major uh, revamp of its mm. suffrage laws around the same time that we did the 19th Amendment. And at that point, 60% um, of men in England could vote. And we assumed that it was 100% of men, 0% of women. And it's like, well, no, only 60%. And why? It was still the residual property ownership laws. And when women can't own property, it has a side effect that women can't vote. It isn't actually a separate decision that was made. It's mm. an artifact of the first decision. Mm. What does that make me feel about everything? I'm saying, look, there still, of course, is a huge problem in all of this. But could I at least pause long enough historically to understand the context of that problem? Or do I quit listening once I hit the crazy quote? Women can't vote. <laughs> I'm done. All right. This is convicting. So, Rick, have you ever been asked to leave a college class by the professor asked you to leave it? No, but I did have a couple moments that were close. I do remember <laughs> one moment where a teacher, I had apparently an inappropriate look on my face when they were making some claims that sounded a little outrageous to me. And the professor pointed at me and said, Langer, this is not funny. Oh, okay. but they didn't ask me to leave. Well, I officially got asked to leave. Ooh, so what did I'm, you do? I'm a leader with crew. I'm at Eastern Michigan University, right? Um, and I'm in a class called Bible as Literature. And in it, the professor is dismantling anything supernatural. Uh -huh. But this is the first day. And she makes the comment, and obviously, seas don't part, right? So... We just know that. So I, so this was most likely the Reed Sea, which was more like a, a marsh. A marsh, yeah. Kind of thing, right? Yeah. Rick, that woman doesn't even finish the sentence. My hand <laughs> is in the air, and I go off on her bias against supernaturalism, and there's actually very good evidence that it was the Dead Sea and blah, blah, blah. And I just went after her. Uncharitable tone, a punk sophomore. I want to say I was a sophomore. Afterwards, she dismisses the class. Mr. Mulehoff, could you stay? <laughs> we need to have a chat. <laughs> and I sat down, and she just said, so, are you here to learn, or are you here to debate? And I said, well, I, I think that was unbiblical, what you said. She goes, okay, I'm going to assume debate. <laughs> um, this is not the place for you. I asked you to come here and learn. And in one class period... You surmise my entire position. I am a Christian, she said to me, but you should not be in my class because this is going to be miserable for both of us. Wow. Well, being teachable, I uh, came to the next <laughs> class and she starts to say something. And honest to goodness, my hand starts to go up and I pull it back down. I go, she's right. This is going to be miserable. I, I, I wasn't interested in learning anything, yeah. Rick. Nothing. Uh, uh, biblical criticism. Didn't want to hear a word of it, right? 
by the way, that would so frustrate me as a Christian professor. Let's do the inverse. I'm at a secular university and I start to bring up Christianity and not, the words aren't even out of my mouth. A person has their hand. That's a hate-filled religion. I'd be like, well, come on now. Can you put your hand down and let me talk a little bit? So, Rick, I totally agree with that, is that I stopped listening and because I've already... Yep. Associated and I'm just ready to go. Boy, that's, that's, yeah, that's a good thing. And it isn't, I'm not saying with this that once you listen, you'll end up agreeing with them, but at least understand what's going on and show them the human courtesy of of hearing them out. And it is amazing. Like I say, with the history things, I'm not giving these as an argument to say, oh yeah, we should repeal the, uh, the 19th amendment because of what voting rights were in England. It just is, we indict an entire section of humanity's moral judgment, and we haven't even taken the time to understand how they understood their own culture and their own situation. Um, so yeah, it's such a, that's such a good point. Okay, let me, I'll, I'll share one. Um, <clears throat> I, I want to call them gotcha moments where I believe I have a drop the mic response. I mean, I'm listening oh, yeah. to you. I'm listening to you talk about whatever. And the whole time I'm having this internal dialogue and it's like, okay, I need to be respectful. So I'm going to wait a minute as you talk, because once I talk, the mic will be dropped and this conversation's over. I have such a devastating rebuttal to what you, by the way, this could be marital communication. It right. could be anything. I'm about to dismantle you, but I'm going to be a little charitable and give you just a little bit more time to talk because we're about to wrap this baby up. Okay. So let me, let me give you for instances. Okay. Okay. We did have Dr. Julia Wood on our podcast, a brilliant gender theorist. Um, so, so when the gender conversation happens, and again, I'm not saying I'm fully up on it, but when it happens, and we're talking about six-year-olds, and again, I don't, I, I'm not attributing any of this to Dr. Wood, right? None of this is, this is just me. This is surmising the argument, is that some people are saying that six- or seven-year-olds should be, have the decision to make about their gender, right? What gender am I going to pick? Well, I came across an article, I actually sent it to you, Rick, that there's a huge debate happening today in Japan yeah. because the age of consent... For sexual intercourse kind yes, of consent. Yes, is yeah. 13. The third lowest in, uh, in the world, world. In the yeah. world. And w- because there's a huge uprising in Japan saying, and literally I gave you a quote of some experts saying a 13-year-old does not have the cognitive abilities to give consent to sexual activity. I have a son who's in law school. We were watching something about the gender fluidity thing and allowing eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds to make huge decisions and even take steps of permanently changing their gender. My son says, as he sits on the couch, well, isn't it ironic that if a 10-year-old killed somebody in the United States, they would be judged as a juvenile, not an adult. They couldn't be tried as an adult. They couldn't they be tried for murder. In could sense. not. And why, my son said, why is that true? And I, I said, well, because they don't have the cognitive abilities. They, they, he said, absolutely. So now I'm locked and loaded, Rick. Now you, have, like, you have the drop the mic argument right there in your hip pocket. My gun is cocked, and I'm desperate to fire this gun, Rick, because this, to me, makes right total sense. Sure. By the way, let me just be the first to say it is really minimizing and stereotyping people who do argue that an 8-year-old or 9-year-old, I, I fully consent to that. 
that there are deeper arguments. These people aren't idiots. There are arguments to be made about gender dysphoria and things like that, okay? But none of that matters because I'm ready to go. I'm locked in. I, let's do it. Uh, bring up this ob- objection, please, because I'm going to lower the hammer. Man, that makes me a really poor listener. Yeah, and it, and it interesting as I, I think about that is you feel kind of exculpated from the responsibility. It isn't a problem for you to fail to listen because you know where this is going and you know it's wrong because you have yeah. the drop the, drop the mic moment. Yeah. And it keeps you from learning things, I think, sometimes. Oh, yeah. uh, we had this experience and I, uh, when, with the, relative to the transgender issue, talking about pronouns and how big a deal they are or they aren't. And, uh, you know, I've, I am not particularly sensitive on that count uh, in terms of being, uh, you know, inclined to the arguments that we have to, to redo how we do all of our pronouns or everyone should identify their favorite pronouns. But I realize you get the drop the mic argument and you don't even feel obliged to understand why a person sees it differently. And that, and you feel good about not feeling that because you know you're right. And I think this stuff, far more so the examples that you were giving of the drop the mic relative to age of consent things, when you're talking about major interventions in terms of, you know, biological, biochemical, biophysical things going on, if you're going to do gender reassignment interventions, either surgically or, um, you know, uh, hormonally, it really becomes, uh, to me, a, a a thing than just saying, how can you say that, uh, you know, if a person can't consent or understand what murder is, why do you think they can uh, unpack the nuance of gender assignment? Yeah, and let me let me give another illustration. I was in grad school and had a, oh, Rick, this guy, Dr. Michael Eric Dyson, is just brilliant. Um, social constructivist, cultural critic, uh, a believer. He says he's a believer. And we were in this class, Rick, called The Politics of Gangster Rap Music. Right. And he is defending songs that are indefensible, indefensible. So he, he again, in terms of the lyrics or content or whatever. Oh, Rick, just me. I I can't even say any of them on our podcast because they would get, there's no way they would make it through. So I made an offhanded comment to a fellow grad student. And the comment was this, there is no defense for that song. There is none. Okay. Then, literally two months later, after he laid out his argument, she turned to me, said, do you still think it's indefensible? (laughs) And I was like, you know, I hate that song. Um, I I get the politics of gangster rap music. It's being used as a resistance movement. I didn't know any of that. And by the way, I'm still saying that song is deeply offensive and problematic. But now it's kind of like what you said. I put it in a context. And, and Dr. Dyson's a pretty brilliant guy. And to me, that was very powerful to say, he's not a, he, why does a really smart man or a woman believe something I think is blatantly ridiculous? That's a really good exercise to say, I'm going to find out. Yeah. Well said, Tim, because I think that is part of the deal to say, and, and I think this would be true. We will probably in the course of events do some podcasts dealing with historical figures like perhaps a Nietzsche or a Marx oh, yeah. or a Sigmund Freud or some of these people that, you know, are far, far different, distant from anything that resembles uh, Christian belief and are antagonistic to it. But at some point I want to say, but these were brilliant people. Oh, yeah. I mean, just objectively brilliant people. Why is it? 
that they thought that way. And, and uh, Merrill Westfall has written this wonderful book called Suspicion and Faith, and he calls it a, a Lenten devotional that basically takes readings from, uh, from Marx, from Nietzsche, and from Freud, who are all deeply suspicious of religion. And he says, what I want us to do is to have this as a season of lament because their critiques about the Christian faith always have an element of interesting truth in mm. them. And we need to be able to listen to our critics. And notice, again, this is a million miles away from saying we need to agree with our critics, right. but rather say, oh, there's a reason why a thoughtful person might think this. Let me at least understand that. And uh, that's a, a valuable exercise. And it requires us to listen even after we know we have some knockdown, dragout argument at the end that won't make us have to agree to that point. Nonetheless, it might help to understand it. Go ahead. Yeah, G.K. Chesterton had a, a wonderful phrase, my beloved foes. <laughs> and I think we're going to do a segment on this. Rick, you and I have talked about who are the movers and shakers that we disagree with, but you've got to listen to Foucault, Nietzsche, um, Sartre, uh, right? We've got to listen to them. And, and with charitableness... Where do we agree as we move towards disagreement? Uh, although perhaps even more challenging is uh, having those listening moments with people who are within your camp as a Christian, oh, that's good. but yeah, with whom yeah. you profoundly yeah. disagree. Yeah. Um, there's quotes that come from people that we hear and we're just like, oh, no. Well, we just talked about, will the crazy quote keep you from listening? Um, and I would be the first to admit that oftentimes it does. I mean, like I say, this wasn't like some abstract exercise. This is a product of self-reflection. All right, you got one more for us? No, but oh. I think it's time that we probably wrap up because oh. I think we've used up our time. We so, have used up. Man, that uh, went fast. It did. Um, what, we thank you for listening because we're asking everybody to listen. But thanks for joining us at the Winsome Conviction Podcast. Uh, and we'd love to have you be a regular listener by subscribing on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you like to get your podcasts. And if these topics are of interest to you, please go to the resource section of the winsomeconviction.com, uh, right, our website, because Rick and I have written about this. So Winsome Persuasion was our first book, and that was how do you listen and engage to those outside the Christian community? And then our second book, Winsome Conviction, is how do you listen to people inside the Christian camp? So we're kind of using these podcasts as uh, teasers a little bit, uh, give you good information, but then we know these are bigger conversations. So please go to winsomeconviction.com and check out our resources. So thanks so much for joining us. It's great to have you. And uh, we uh, strongly encourage you to join us in the project of cultivating meaningful convictions, but holding them in ways that avoid dividing our communities.